0: Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word today, we want to hear your voice speak to us. We want to hear your spirit confirm it in us. Father, teach us and show us. And Lord, I pray that today you would ground us deeply in the truth so that we would be well rooted and less movable, shakable by the stuff of this world and by the struggles of life and by opposition even persecution, if that should be our lot. Lord, we would consider you worth it. We would consider your approval, your pleasure in our lives worth whatever the cost. We would consider the the reward worth it, the promise of seeing you face to face worth it. And so, Father, grow our faith today. Show us the worth of Christ. If there's someone here today that's trying to figure all these things out, um, who they are and how they're supposed to live and where you fit into it all. Father, I pray that today you'd make yourself plain and clear to them in a way that would be, well, would seem to be to them irresistible. And they would respond to you and say, yes, Lord, I want to I follow you too. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want you to be the king of my life. And Lord, I pray you'd be pleased with that. Lord, be pleased in our response to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 8 today. And the backdrop of Acts chapter 8, as we saw last week, is persecution. And while the message today is not on persecution per se, I don't want us to think of persecution as some peculiar thing that has no bearing on our lives. As we prayed this morning at 8 o'clock in our call to prayer before we begin life group and worship together on campus, one of the things we're reminded of is this. We are brothers and sisters in Christ with Christians all across the globe. And many of them are persecuted. And not just the soft sort of way, that that feels difficult for us, but still is rather soft, not just in a social sort of way, not just in a cultural sort of way, but in a very real way, a physical way, a threatening way, really a a life-threatening way. And to remember that we're united with them by the blood of Christ, is important that we pray for them and we consider those challenges. And also that we sometimes need to dispel some of those myths that we hold, that persecution just always results in proliferation of the gospel, because it doesn't. We see in many places that persecution is driving out Christian communities and squelching the gospel, and we need to pray that it endures there. But we also have to understand that persecution is probably part of our future as well. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we're already seeing it in soft ways. You post something on social media that that goes against the cultural norm or cultural flow, and you'll see what soft persecution looks like and pushback looks like. I saw a Twitter thread that just kind of caught fire. Uh, over the weekend, a Christian school in Louisville, Kentucky, gave an assignment to middle schoolers, and it was something along these lines. And this is not it verbatim, but along these lines: if you have a if you have a friend who tells you that they're homosexual or they're in a homosexual relationship, how would you respond to them in love? And the challenge was specifically respond to them in love, with implications that you would share Scripture with them, you would share Jesus with them. How do you respond in love? Well, this got picked up from social media, a lot of different accounts, with a hashtag attached to it at the bottom, stop the hate. And this just began to be an example of if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to follow biblical norms in 2022 and beyond, you are decidedly swimming against the cultural stream. There's going to be pushback. And my concern is this. Both of these students are heading off to college, you in the workplace. Will you stand firm in the face of opposition? if we won't stand firm in the face of soft opposition, social, cultural opposition, what will we do when that opposition becomes governmental or legal, forceful or physical? What will we do then? How will we stand firm? Well, we see persecution just taking off in the early church. It's part of the story of the first few hundred years of the church. As much as the church just blew up in growth, it faced great pain and suffering as well. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But here's the effect. This is God's providence. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So you have Stephen, the first martyr that we know of, first recorded martyr in scripture. And as Stephen preached the gospel, the recoil was fierce and fast. And immediately, persecution arose. Immediately, persecution arose. And the effect of that persecution was that it scattered the disciples. But the scattering of the disciples led to the spreading of the word. They took the gospel with them. It wasn't just private. It wasn't just personal to them. It wasn't just what they did in their homes or in their time away from everyone else. This is who they were. This is how they live. It couldn't but help come out. This wasn't some strategy. This wasn't some early church methodology. There wasn't a curriculum for this. There wasn't a course that you took for this. This was just life. It's just Christians living as Christians, talking about who they are, why they believe what they believe, why they do what they do. And the important thing to note is this. It wasn't the apostles that were spreading the faith. It's not that the apostles didn't spread the faith. I mean, these were bold speakers these were bold preachers of the word they fearlessly stood up in front of crowds without considering the cost and most of them would pay an extreme cost their lives for what they did now the real work of the church the early church was regular people people just like you who going about their business doing exactly what's well what the great commission says as you go into the world you go and you take the gospel with you and you make disciples and it's it's persecuted laity, lay people, regular people, church members, spreading the good news. Listen, it hasn't changed. The methodology hasn't changed. The way God works hasn't changed. There will always be a place for the evangelists. There will always be a place for the the Billy Graham, uh, the Greg Laurie. There will always be a place for those people who speak publicly the gospel, to large crowds with the gospel. But the real work of the everyday church is going to be people like you, talking to people that you know in the circles that you're in the spheres of influence that God has granted you about Jesus let's look at Philip for a moment verse five Philip was one of those scattered Philip we know was a deacon he was one of the ones we looked at in Acts chapter six it's a reminder by the way that deacon ministry is not just something internal to the church because of who these men were in Christ remember there are two primary criteria full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit because that's just who they were wise knowing what is right and knowing how to apply what is right in the right way with the right people in the right place in the right time and being filled with the holy spirit which makes them natural evangelists because you can't keep that in philip being one of those the only man we see in the book of acts called an evangelist says philip went down to the city of samaria and he proclaimed to them the christ And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. All right, let's look at what's happening in the text for a moment, because this, this is a tricky text. And uh, here's the thing. Th- there's a lot of meat on this bone, which, unfortunately, I'm going to leave some. There's just not enough time. But I hope that what we talk about today will stir up some good uh, study uh, on your own and some good discussion in your small groups and stir up the right sort of questions that, want you, that cause you to want to dig deep and find out what exactly is happening here in all this text. But let's start here for a moment. First of all, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is being fulfilled right now just as God said it would. Now, probably not the way they expected it to. Acts 1-8 is a little different than the Great Commission we see in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is a command, Acts 1-8 is a promise. It says, and you will be my witnesses, you will be. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now that's exactly happening. It's not according to some master plan concocted by the apostles, but it is according to the master plan of God, who by his providence is carrying out his goodness in the world. And so because he had sent them out, Matthew 28, he sent them out to neighbor and nation in Matthew 28, and they didn't exactly go. They weren't flocking to go to Samaria. They thought very poorly of Samaria, as we'll see in a moment, because they weren't heading out to these pagan places. They weren't going out to these unclean people. They weren't going to these people unlike them. They were staying with people who were culturally and socially and essentially religiously like them. God allowed for persecution to come, and it dispersed them. And so now they're being sent out. But Samaria, Samaria is a unique sort of place. Samaria, and I won't go into great detail on this. If we had more time or if this was an ongoing Bible study in this, I would maybe dig a little bit deeper into the context. But just know that Samaria presented some unique challenges and some opportunities here. When I say opportunities, at least Samaritans, and maybe for a lack of better term, lack of better description, they had a lot of the similar sort of Bible furniture in the room. You know, they had some of the concepts. They believed in God, they believed in the law of God, Uh, they accepted the first five books of scripture called the Pentateuch, even though they altered theirs in some critical points. Uh, They believed in being accountable to God, they believed in worshiping God, I mean they had some of the right furniture in place, it was just in some of the wrong places in the room. So in other words, you could come into a context like the Samaritans, and with some commonalities in place, you could talk about terms and people understand the terms, and you could explain what they meant, you could explain the gospel to them, you didn't have to start with some sort of, I don't know, pagan mindset, or zero understanding, it's different sharing the gospel with people who've been to church here or there in their life, or know people who have, or, or know some of the things about it, or even come from a different religious persuasion, than it is sharing with someone who's never heard the story, so there are some opportunities there, but there are some challenges that are unique to Samaria, You may remember from our study in the Gospel of John and our study in the Gospel of Mark that the Jews and the Samaritans did not, uh, what's the word, Uh, jehol. They didn't get along well together. The Jews considered the Samaritans unclean people. And actually they considered them a bit worse than pagans because they were a bastardized people, a blend of what was once the line of Jewish people or Semitic people that had blended themselves with pagan people and now they were worse than pagan. In fact, Jews typically consider their two worst enemies, culturally, of all time, to be Philistines and Samaritans. And so they did not pass in each other's places, they did not share in each other's company, they had rival sort of religions. It goes all the way back to civil war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the sons of Solomon. It goes back to a time where the Samaritans established their own temple on Mount Gerizim, In fact, they took the teachings of Deuteronomy, which commanded the temple to be built, and they switched the wording around a little bit. Instead of the mount that God had planned, they said, no, no, it's Mount Gerizim here in Samaria, and we'll build it there. Their Pentateuch was a little bit different. Their scriptures were a little bit different. Their priesthood, or their religious system, was different. All those things were different. In fact, by the time you get to the Gospels, you see in common vernacular that Jewish people would refer sort of synonymously to demon-possessed people and Samaritans, you know? You know how we used to do when we were kids is never be politically correct today, and I don't know how it ever got started. At that time, I never even met anyone from Poland, but it was common for kids then, we say you Polak, right? No offense if you're Polish. I, I didn't even know any Polish people back then, but that was some insult we learned. And I remember when we went to Cuba on a mission trip the first time, and we're visiting different provinces in Cuba, which is a rather small island, there's a particular place, a particular little island area called Pinar del Rio, and they had so many Cuban jokes about pianaraños. So anyone who made a mistake, anyone who said something ignorant, or anyone who just didn't look right, they, that was a pianaraño, you know, that was an insult. Well, that's just sort of what they would do to Samaritans. Demon-possessed or Samaritans. This is how badly they saw each other. So how do you penetrate the gospel there? Well, persecution. Persecution disperses someone, like Philip, now into that place, And here he is preaching the gospel. Look at the response of the people as they heard the gospel. There's one word there I just want you to seize on. When they heard this, when they heard this good news, their response was joy. Their response was joy. This was the antidote to their struggles and to their sorrow and to their discouragement. Joy. What was there to be joyful about? That's all wrapped up in the two themes that we see Philip preaching. I just want to hit these briefly. Two themes. Two deep theological themes that the scripture writer just simply covers, that Luke just simply covers. It says he preached these themes, the kingdom of God and the name of Christ. The kingdom of God and the name of Christ. Now why would that bring such joy to the Samaritans? What they're hearing now, what was so shocking in their ears for the first time is this, God's kingdom includes us. We're invited into this kingdom through Christ. We have access to into the kingdom of God through Christ. Anyone who wants to be part of this eternal kingdom, this kingdom that begins here and now, remember that was the good news that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I am the king. This is the kingdom. It begins now under my rule and reign and it goes forever and it will be absolutely perfect under me. You can enter that through Jesus Christ. So he begins to preach the kingdom. You can be part of God's forever family only through one person through the name of Christ. And when they understood this, their response was joy. Their response was joy. A couple of side things, and I didn't put these in your notes. I thought about it and wasn't sure how much time I would have to cover, but maybe some important just considerations. If you're looking at the text, some things you might wonder. One of these is this, for me, particularly in the book of Acts, would be the question, why are there so many miracles? I mean, why are these miracles necessary? Were they necessary for the gospel? Because, again, Here you have Philip going into Samaria, and immediately he's doing miracles. And the Bible's pretty clear there. They're paying attention, not just to the words, but to the miracles. And so once again, we see this pattern, much like in the ministry of Jesus and the pattern of the other apostles, is that when God is breaking through profound darkness, He often does it with signs and wonders. And so the question for us might be this, are signs and wonders necessary when preaching the gospel? That's a fair question, I think, when you look at Acts. Are they necessary in preaching the gospel? And I think the right answer is this. Maybe. Maybe. And it entirely depends on the context. It entirely depends on the sort of culture that the gospel finds itself penetrating. What happens when the gospel goes into a culture where there is all sorts of superstition, magical expression? I mean, there's something afoot here with this Simon the Magician, right? I mean, you could write this off for sure. You could say, man, this, this guy just, you know, slight of hand, tricks. You know, he, he learned how to deceive people, maybe. But there's also something significant about it that he carried it off for such a long time that the people were amazed by him, so much so that they said, this man has the power called the great. The great. Now, your translation may read a little differently. It may have reduced that he has the power of God, which is great. But that's not exactly the original reading of the text. In fact, the, most, the, the, the earliest, most contemporary commentators of what Simon was doing said he actually, and what they're referring to, the great, is actually God, little g. There's some spiritual force behind what he's doing, some sort of dark spiritual force, That Simon, or was working through Simon, something demonic, something powerful that was creating great acts. There certainly were demonic acts taking place. And so when Philip brings the gospel in, it should not surprise us that God demonstrates his superior power. We see the same thing with Moses and the priests of Egypt. We see the same thing with Elijah and the priests and prophets of Baal. The, The preeminent, prevailing, all surpassing power of God. And so maybe. And what do we make of all the demon possession that we see? Because again, we see the miraculous and we see people getting physically healed. That's a great part of the miraculous, but also people getting set free from demon possession. And so we would look at that with a twenty twenty two mindset of skepticism and say that they must have been mistaken. That must have been something else, because we don't have that today. We don't see that today. At least not much, you know, except maybe in a movie or two we've seen. But most of us are not experienced with encountering that. So so what's the deal? Why was there so much then and there's none now? Well, the answer may be something like this. We still have a spiritual enemy. We still face principalities and powers. We, we still have spiritual warfare in front of us. And maybe the strategy of the enemy is consistent, but looks a bit different for our culture. Maybe it is much like C.S. Lewis wrote in the Screwtape Letters. In the intro to the Screwtape Letters, Lewis describes two great errors that we can have when it comes to demons. One is to not believe in them at all, just to dismiss them altogether, which I think far too many contemporary Christians do. The second error is this, he said, to be so preoccupied with them that we give them too much attention. He said, but be sure of this, whether our perspective is material, like the culture we live in today, this materialistic, self-centered culture, or whether it's magical, like it would have been in the first century in a place like Samaria, demons are still at work, and they're happy to accommodate either of those cultures. So what I'm saying is this: maybe those external evidences that we see of demon possession, maybe they're just hidden today. But maybe some of the overt evil that we see in the world still is demon possession. It's still demon possession. I saw someone who tweeted the other day, a person holding a or wearing a T-shirt, said, "I have had 21 abortions." Who's celebrating this? That's demonic. That's demonic. Some of what we see in our culture today reeks of demonic influence, not just evil influence, demonic influence. So there's prevalent there. It's still there. They may not be as commonly manifest in our culture, but doesn't mean they're not real. They're still spiritual warfare, and that's what calls the church to pray and pray. Now here's something very interesting in this text. You see what's happened so far. Look at chapter. I mean, look at chapter uh, chapter eight, verse fourteen. So after seeing these signs and miracles performed, now Simon is amazed by them. He believes something. He's baptized. He looks like a follower now. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's that about? That sounds a little bit different than our practice, right? That that sounds a little bit different than how we understand salvation, right? You have two extremes, and I hope I can dispel both of them very briefly today. In Roman Catholicism, They would use a text like this as a proof to emphasize the ability and the particular power and anointing of the apostles, and the line of the apostles, to convey spiritual blessing. It has to come through them. Therefore, it has to come through the church. If your belief is Pentecostal, Pentecostals have often used this as a proof text, as some sort of prescriptive text to say salvation comes in two iterations. You can be saved but not be given the Holy Spirit, and that has to come as a second blessing. Neither one of those are true. Neither one of those are accurate. Let's look at what's happening in the text with this reminder to begin with. There are events in the book of Acts that are descriptive, not prescriptive. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. They happened, and we're given context as to why they happened and what they mean, but it doesn't mean that they will be repeated in our day. A perfect perfect example of that would be Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This was the promised gift to the church that birthed the church, And that age is not a repeatable age. However, we see some unique similarities here in this text. So, there are a couple possibilities here. One solution is this. You could say that the Samaritans, having heard the gospel, having heard the good news, received it with joy, believed in it, and were baptized, that they had received salvation, but they had not received any of what we would call spiritual gifts charisma charismatic gifts they had not received any evidences and so when the apostles arrived they lay hands on them and now they receive spiritual gifts so now there's evidences of those spiritual gifts that we see later 1 corinthians chapter uh, chapter 12 romans chapter 12 13 we see these spiritual gifts um is that a possibility i mean one reading can certainly lead you to that because when simon the magician saw it, he saw something there he saw something that they were doing which impressed him which later we're going to see he wants not the possession of, but the ability to distribute that, that sort of power. And also we know that the apostles had a special position in Acts. Um, Early on, they were the ones that dispensed, it seems like, these spiritual gifts by laying on of hands. And again, um, there is this essence of the Spirit falling on them or falling upon is a phrase that we see in um, in the Scriptures that describe the Holy Spirit coming in a particular way. On the other hand, a simple reading of the text would suggest this, that the Holy Spirit, as they were baptized and believed, they were not yet fully converted. They believed, they heard it, but not yet fully converted until the Holy Spirit came. So a second solution would be, even though normally upon belief and baptism you receive the Holy Spirit, for some reason it was withheld here. Well, let's look at what the text says for a moment and three reasons why I think what I'm about to say makes sense on what's happening with the Holy Spirit. First of all, we need to understand this. This is the first time that the gospel has gone outside of Jerusalem. Remember, that was the plan. In the Great Commission, you'll be my witnesses, or Acts 1-8 says you'll be my witnesses. In the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus, teaching them to do all things I've commanded, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth is Acts 1 8. We know this. This is the first time that the Gospels actually accomplished this and gone into Samaria. So, in a real sense, this is what we would call a second Pentecost. This is the second event of Pentecost happening here. So, you have a parallel between Acts 16 and 17 and Acts 2 4. So, in Acts 2 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why? Because the Holy Spirit fell on them there. We would not have said those men were not believers. So they were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. We see something similar in Acts ten 44. We'll get to this text in a few weeks, but this is Peter. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit falls on the church in Samaria. In Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile church to the ends of the earth. And these are manifestations of the Holy Spirit identifying this church as one single church. And that's why number two is critical. Ultimately, what's happening here is about the unity of the church. This is about the unity of there being one church. This morning, we prayed for our brothers and sisters in places all over the globe. Why? Because ultimately, there is one true church, all those bought by the blood of Christ, all those baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. One universal church that unites us all. Long had there been a schism, as I mentioned, between the Jews and the Samaritans, and that ran deep. If you want to know how deep, it even affected the apostles. Consider John's attitude, which is so ironic in this text. When this happens in Samaria, they call on Peter and John to come. John was one who used to hold all of these opinions about the Samaritans. This is Luke 9, 51 through 54. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Okay, so you picture the scene. Jesus is now about to make his final descent or ascent into Jerusalem, and this is going to be the last days of Jesus, and they're trying to make accommodations for him in a Samaritan town. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Probably that means they didn't receive him because he was Jewish and he was headed towards Passover in Jerusalem. And they perceived this. This is a Jewish pilgrim, a Jewish traveler. And so the Samaritans wouldn't receive him. Why? Because they hated the Jews and vice versa. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, catch this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. You see, that was the mindset of a Jewish person at that time. This is how worthless they are. This is how pagan they are. This is how anti-God they are. And so this is the great irony here. As the Holy Spirit falls there, God is uniting the congregation of Jerusalem, the congregation of Samaria, and later the congregation of all future Gentiles under one umbrella of the church. The Samaritans are the first non-Jews to accept Jesus. This is big. This is huge. There could easily have been a Jewish church, a Samaritan church, a Roman church. An Asian church, but that is not what God did. So in order to force these two groups together, God withholds the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls on both until the apostles can come down at the time, the right time, affirm what is happening there, affirm the essential unity of what happened in Jerusalem is now happening here. God, under his sovereignty, his own perfect timing, by his own will, his Holy Spirit has now fallen on them, and now we are one body. And so you have the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. They're baptized in the same spirit. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. This is the verification of what's happening in Acts chapter 8. And then, of course, this apostolic recognition was critical as well. They bore the authority of the church. God had given them, Jesus had given them, the keys to the kingdom, he said. So whatever you lock will be locked. Whatever you unlock will be unlocked. It is up to you to determine what is a right profession of faith. And who is a person, a right professor of that faith? What is the legit message, and who is affirming that message legitimately? And so this apostolic confirmation is all part of what God is doing to unify the church. In an old commentary dated 1900, one of my favorite old theologians, Abraham Kuyper, in his book called The Work of the Holy Spirit, gives this illustration. This might be helpful. Suppose that the city above, and he's talking about Jerusalem and relationship to Samaria and the people of God. Suppose that the city above referred to consisted of a lower and an upper part both to be supplied from the same reservoir. Upon the completion of its system, the lower city may receive the water first, and then the upper part receive it only after the system shall have been extended. And here we notice two things. The distribution of the water took place but once, which was the formal opening of the water works and could take place but once, while the distribution of the water in the upper city, although extraordinary, was but an after effect of the former event. You get what he's saying? So you have this distribution of water. It first fills up Jerusalem, but as it overflows in Jerusalem, now it hits Samaria and then Gentile places. He said, this is a fair illustration of what took place in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church consists of two parts sharply defined, Jewish and Gentile world, and really that intermediate, Jewish, Samaritan, Gentile, yet, all are to constitute one body, one people, one church. Both are to live one life in the Holy Ghost, he said. On Pentecost, he's poured out into the body, but only to quench the thirst of one part, the Jewish. The other part is still excluded. But now apostles and evangelists start from Jerusalem, come in contact with Samaritans, Gentiles, and the hours come for the stream of the Holy Ghost to pour forth into all parts of the church. And the whole body is refreshed by the same Holy Spirit. And that's what we see happening here. And we have to be reminded of this. It's very challenging for us, and we can make some mistakes sometimes when we take one passage of Scripture and try to interpret it with disconnect from the rest of Scripture. And the apostles were very, very clear on the role of Holy Spirit and, the salva- and salvation. When Peter gave the first gospel message that we saw several weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, this is what he said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. For Peter, it was one event. You, rece- you repent and be baptized, you'll be saved, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And Paul affirmed this same truth in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Did you catch that? So it's not possible to not have the Spirit and be saved. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, you're still dead in your sins without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll not be raised without the life-giving, eternal power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church has been consistent on that since the time of Peter. So why would God act in such a way? Again, our best answer is it's an anomaly. It's not a proof text to say you get saved by believing something, and later you experience something. No, there's a power of God that falls on us at the point of our salvation that's only possible by His Spirit, which gives us life. Let's look at Simon just for a moment, sort of in, in closing here. Interesting character, and this is kind of two sermons in one, but stick with me for a second, because this Simon character is worth analyzing a minute because it speaks to a very contemporary concern. Simon was an outlier in his day, but he's not an outlier anymore. What do you mean by that? You know, Satan has had a strategy since the beginning to sow tares among the wheat. To, in the middle of God's harvest, to sow that which looks the same as the harvest, but can't really be discerned, differentiated, until the actual date of harvest comes. All grows up together, looks the same. Tares among wheat. That's why there are so many warnings in Scripture about check yourself to see if you're in the faith, or warnings of Jesus, the most troubling passages we see in Scripture. There will be many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and will list all the things they accomplished, all the things they did, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Who are those people? I think they're the Simon Magus of the world, not a heathen convert, but really the first heretic. Consider, first of all, how Luke describes them. None of it complimentary. You catch some of those first verses that we looked up just a moment ago, verse 9. What did, what did Simon say about himself? He was told that he was great, and he told people he was great. It isn't it amazing the power of suggestibility? You know, I think that's always been true. You, you tell people enough that you're an expert, they start to believe it. You tell people how incredible you are, how intelligent you are, how insightful you are, and they say, well, he must be. And that's exactly what he did. He was a great self-promoter. And this whole reputation that he had, he, he saw himself as great, possessing the power of a God, this supernatural power, but nothing about him demonstrates genuine conversion. You say, but he, was, but he believed and was baptized, but we don't know exactly what he believed. We know that he was impressed with the gifts, we know that he was impressed with the spiritual power that he saw when... When Philip came into town and people were released from demon possession and people were physically healed and restored to healthy life, he saw that and he saw a competition and he saw a superiority in what was being done. He wanted some of that. And consider even what he desired from what he saw. Look at verse 17. After they laid hands with him, they received the Holy Spirit. It says, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He saw something. He saw some dynamic power as a result. And so what did he do? He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wasn't so interested in the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit or the healing, restorative work of God's Spirit. He was interested in the, the ability to dispense it. He wanted to be like an apostle. He wanted that. Now listen to Peter's curse. And it is a curse in every sort of way. In fact, we've so much softened it in English translations that we may have lost the weight of what Peter said. And Peter was not the type to watch his words. Bible translators are. But here's what Peter said. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Literally, you and your money can go to hell, is what he said. Because that's what he thought was the, the life direction of, of Simon. You can perish with your money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. What does he tell him to do? Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And listen to what Peter said. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're in the throes of this. You're a captive to this. You are not spiritually set free. You are not a new creation in Christ. You have a wicked heart. He says, repent. And probably most telling was Simon's answer to that. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come to me. He doesn't pray. He doesn't repent. He says, how about you pray that none of what you just said happens? That none of what you said is true. You do the praying here. So we, what we actually see is the evidence of someone who's not truly saved. You may have heard the phrase used in the, in the Reformation age of simony. It's the, the charge of someone buying offices, buying their way into the church. In fact, from the first century on, Christian literature has depicted Simon as, according to F.F. F. Bruce, the father of all heresies the unrelenting adversary of Peter from place to place and ultimately in Rome. We don't know that from Scripture. Early church history tells us that. And it was even the father of what would later become the arch enemy of the early church, Gnosticism. And so many heresies, starting through Simon. What does that mean for me and you today? And why am I telling you this? Just be aware, it was then and it still is possible to be a false convert. Not everyone who says they believe Not everyone who's been through the actions of belief like baptism or participating in communion is truly born again, truly has a new spirit, truly has experienced the miraculous work of God. And listen, that's always been Satan's strategy. And I've said this again and again, and it sounds like a broken record probably, but I am still convinced that the greatest health problem in any church, but specifically magnified in the modern American church, is unconverted church members. And we struggle with that because it just doesn't work. We have the form of something, but not the reality. It's possible to do that. Well, what should you not miss from this text? Let me summarize with just a couple of thoughts, and then I want to pray for us today. The first one is this. You need to know that whatever is happening in this world, that the purposes of God are always good. God is always working a bigger picture, a better plan, and a longer game. And even though persecution came to the early church, those early Christians thought themselves blessed to be counted worthy of persecution, and they suffered for it. Listen, God's purposes are always good. Even through that persecution, the providence of God caused the gospel to go out and bring great joy. The suffering of some saints was the cause of great joy for all those who believed in an entire region, and they would probably tell you it was worth it. It was worth it, and that's what God did for their light and momentary difficulties could not be counted in comparison to the weight of eternal glory. Second one is this. God's power to save is amazing. I didn't spend too much time on that point, but I want you to see it in the text. It was clear for a Jewish person, their perspective was the unsavability of the Samaritans. And they're as bad as they can get. These have been our lifelong enemies. These people have been traitors against us. These people have harbored our, our, our fugitives. These people have partnered with the Um, With our worst enemies, Uh, these people have been our antagonists as long as I can remember. Everything they have and everything they are is is just reprehensible to us. Who do you see as unsavable? Who do you see as unreachable, untouchable by the Spirit of God? I think back to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember when Nicodemus asked Jesus about salvation? He was having this conversation with him and Jesus told him, you have to be born again perhaps not exactly understanding the phrase, but asking in a way that's sort of exaggerative. He says, well, how can a man go into his mother's womb and be born again? I mean, how do I start all over? How do I undo everything? And what was Jesus' answer? After he told him, you have to be born again, and Nicodemus says, well, how? How am I to be born again? He didn't give him a three-part plan of salvation. He didn't say, pray this prayer after me and mean it. He didn't say, raise your hand. He didn't say, sign this card. His first response to him was this. He said, The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit blows wherever it will. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows wherever it will. In the unbelieving, in the pagan, in the person that's far from God. And God's ability to save is amazing. And we should pray that we see the same thing. We should, we should pray that the sovereign God, through His Spirit, blows. That He blows in places that just seem unreachable, untouchable by us. That all the strategies in the world all the programs and methodologies, all the rehearsed plans and programs are never going to touch, but the Holy Spirit will as we pray. Hospital, neighborhood, community, nation, we pray. Number three, God's salvation is always, always, and I should have put the word always in in 10 exclamation points. It's always supernatural. There's no salvation that's not supernatural. Because we're not just talking about a set of things that you agree to, a list, a a credo, a, a confession. We're talking about a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the internal parts of a man, changing the heart and mind of a person. We're talking about the Holy Spirit coming in such a way that even a lost person, even a pagan person can see there's something different here. We're talking about evidences that can't be contained. We're talking about a Holy Spirit that doesn't remain hidden. We're talking about the work of God, the feeling of God's Spirit that shows up. It's always supernatural and finally as you go out I want you to think of this as your assignment you're an instrument of joy if you'll be a bearer of the gospel if you'll bear the good news you'll be an instrument of joy because man that's great news that God has a kingdom and you can enter it through Jesus Christ you're in a kingdom now the Bible says it's a kingdom of darkness and sin and ultimately of death God has a kingdom. It's a kingdom of life and joy. And you can enter it. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have the power and presence of God in your life now. You can enjoy God forever in his presence, his fullness of joy. You can have this. You're an instrument of that joy. When you're sharing the gospel, you're not just fighting the culture. You're not just arguing with the pagan. You're not just defeating the enemy. You're carrying the joy of God. You're carrying the good news that brings great joy. And that's, that's who we are. So the conclusion of the story looks like this. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And now it's on. It's on. And this joy is contagious. And it will go and it will grow. Listen, that hasn't changed. That's still That's still us. That's still possible. That's still God's will. Let's pray. Fathers, we gather here today in this room. Everyone that belongs to you. Everyone who is trusted in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ for us. Who lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose physically for us, who's coming again certainly. Those who have been Reborn, regenerated by your spirit, all of us who are truly yours, as different as we are, as varied as our backgrounds are, our upbringings and our economy and our just everything, our culture. I mean, just as different as we may be, we are all this. We're all sons and daughters of the King. We've all been baptized into one body through your Holy Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the baptism of your Spirit, and you've made us your people. And we have one great, overwhelming life aim to be good representatives of Jesus, to be as ambassadors, wherever this life takes us, to be ambassadors of Christ. And Father, I pray you'll take some that are in this room, maybe some who've graduated today, Maybe some are much older than those who graduated today. And I pray you'll send them to difficult places. I pray you'll send them to places that currently are dark, but will receive the joy of the gospel. I pray that you'll send them to unreached places. Father, I pray that all of us, wherever you send us, wherever you lead us, wherever life takes us, that we'll represent you well there. And Lord, if part of that representation Requires miraculous works. We will give all the credit and glory to you. We will not think of ourselves as great, but you as great. But Lord, I pray that every believer in this room would be intentionally, consciously agents of joy for the good of those who need you and for the glory of your name and for the blessing we have in being partners with you in this great mission. And Father, I pray if there's somebody here today who may, for whatever reason, consider themselves just, I don't know, out of bounds, unreachable, too far gone, whatever it may be. Father, I pray they would see that your work is definitive. You you receive any who come to you and all who come to you. And your Holy Spirit is enough to change any heart, any life. And the grace that you give through what Jesus did for us, the forgiveness offered Well, that's just definitive. You're a greater Savior than anyone is a sinner. So Lord, I pray that they too would come and they would find joy in you. So Lord, hear us as we sing, as we respond. I pray in Jesus' name.